The Startup Life is brought to you by Target. No matter if it's household items to make your home more aesthetically pleasing or a 65-inch TV to complete that man cave, Target is the go-to place for high-quality products at an affordable price. Start your Target journey with a link in our show notes. Target. Expect more. Pay less. This week on The Startup Life. There's some data that suggests it takes four or five years for a software to get product market fit. I'm thinking there might be some places where it takes even longer than that. And across that time period, you're going to change how you talk about the business, what that point of differentiation is. All right, Startup Nation, so let's take flight with doctors Todd and Kim Saxton professors at the Indiana University Kelly School of Business and co-authors of The Titanic Effect. The Startup Life begins now. 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... Hey, Startup Nation. Do you enjoy the startup life? Now you can let the world know with gear from the show. Choose from the label yourself, make your own luck, and making money t-shirts to tell your story of your path of entrepreneurship. Click the link in the show notes to purchase. All right, Startup Nation. So I hope you're ready to see some value today. We got two, two big time guests in the building today. We have Dr. Todd Saxton and Dr. Kim Saxton uh, from Indiana University and authors of uh, The Titanic Effect. How's it going, people? We are good. Thanks for having us. Awesome Super stuff. Happy to be here today. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Are you both ready to pour some knowledge into Startup Nation today? We are going to do our level best. How's that? All righty. As always, Startup Nation, my name is Dominic Lawson. This is the Startup Life Podcast, and it is powered by the Binge Podcast Network. So first things first, if you would, both of you, kind of share your origin story uh, on your career and how you got to where you are today. All right. I'll take a first shot at it. So, Sounds good. Uh, first of all, uh, the last name is no coincidence. We are actually married, so not brother, sister. I'm not her father, just, you know, in case you gotcha. have that question in the back of your mind. Um, gotcha. We met in the D.C. area out of our undergraduate programs at a consulting firm okay. and uh, did, did that for about six years and then decided kind of if and when we grew up, uh, the consulting life was a bit of a challenge, so we came back, got our PhDs, and, and moved on to academia. We have a lot of that in our family, uh, both parents on on my side and Kim's mom, so uh, we have a uh, kind of history and, and uh, I guess, genetic predisposition toward that. So uh, came back, got our PhDs at IU, and that took us into working, in Kim's case, in the marketing field, in my case, in strategy and entrepreneurship. and. Uh, over the past 20 years, I've taught a number of students, but also done a lot with the venture community here in Indianapolis uh, and beyond, uh, taught internationally and, and do a lot with our online students who are distributed globally uh, in the entrepreneurship space, helping our students, our alumni, and people in the venture community start companies, uh, moved into helping fund and, and helping be co-founders for a couple of ventures. And uh, that that's kind of the 
the long history. I'll let Kim talk a little bit more about her background and specifically how that led to the Titanic effect. Sure thing. So I'm sure you're probably familiar, Dominic, that a lot of early stage startup issues are marketing issues. Yes. <laughs> and so we have been in the Indianapolis area now for about 22, 23 years. And once you're embedded in a, in a place, you kind of seek out the ecosystem and you learn who the players are and you start meeting with entrepreneurs and people have so many ideas they want to run past you. And what we discovered is that we were getting more and more involved with a variety of different startups at different levels, from advisors to co-founders to, you know, just brainstorming ideas. And we started seeing patterns of similar decisions that these startups were making that at the time looked like a good decision. But we know that startup life is very uncertain and that the main thing you're trying to do is figure out how to cut down the uncertainty by taking a few steps, seeing what happens, taking a few more steps. And we would see some of these decisions would kind of turn around and cause problems later. And so we categorized them into 23 different common problems that we see in early stage startups. And we looked for a metaphor for it and we saw, uh, maybe it was 32, I think I just got corrected. Um, and we looked for a metaphor and we thought of this idea of that, you know, it's like an iceberg that you see something on the top and that looks good and you don't see the whole thing looming under the ground. And of course that led us to the Titanic because of the iceberg that sank the Titanic. And we started doing some research like academics do. And we discovered that there were a lot of parallels to starting a new venture that occurred for the White Star Line in trying to launch the Titanic. And that's how we got to the book. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And that's why, you know, I was definitely excited about having you both on to talk about the book, The Titanic Effect, Successfully Navigating the Uncertainties that Sink Most uh, Startups. And one of the things I found fascinating about the book uh, was, uh, and you talked about it, Kim, about the White Star Line and some of those things that uh, may have contributed to it long before the iceberg even kind of came uh, into in the uh, the story of the Titanic or what we know of the Titanic. But you guys actually cite a book from 14 years before uh, the Titan- Titanic even uh, set sail. And the reason I find that interesting, because I'm a firm believer that I don't think any of us can accurately kind of predict the future. But I think if you're looking at the circumstances that are going on at that time, uh, you can kind of have a good shot at it. And that's what that book, Fertility, that you kind of cited in your book uh, talks about. So talk about when we have those, like, not necessarily red flags, but those indicators of certain things, are people just wanting to kind of just blissfully ignore them? Are they just saying, oh, we'll just push through? What goes through the mind, you think, when people kind of go forward with startups and they eventually just fail like that? So you touch on a couple of things there. And, and sure. first of all, Dominic, I, I just want to say we really appreciate the advanced work you do to be informed about the material and, and the specifics. So uh, thank you for that. No and worries. what what was really cool about futility and, and that, you know, kind of the writing on the wall, the red flags or, or early warnings, if you will, uh, of increasing boat traffic across the Atlantic, right. lots of icebergs you know, a prediction that's memorialized in a story 14 years before that uh, there might be an accident that, that caused disaster. You know, yeah, to some degree, uh, you could just say that was, that was just 
inevitable to happen. The right, fact right. that the name of the ship in that story was called the Titan, that is the eerie part to me. That is eerie, I'd imagine. Yeah, for <laughs> exactly. Sure. And anybody who read that book probably never would have named a big ship Titanic or anything like it because uh, right. that was a little crazy. But yeah, so that's that's really the fundamental premise behind us uh, taking on this work and, and trying to help entrepreneurs and founders of different types uh, kind of understand where those red flags or, or where those uh, debtbergs, as we call them in the book, right. might actually come in the future because of decisions they're making today. Uh, so because of the enthusiasm and passion for the problems they're solving, entrepreneurs have a lot on their plate and they also often are not kind of fully cognizant of some of these hidden debts that they might be accumulating uh, so that when those icebergs do hit them, it is a surprise. And we feel like there, there are these systematic patterns uh, that, that we see and, and seem to resonate with seasoned entrepreneurs, particularly uh, that, that can help the particularly new founder, but, but uh, founder at any stage uh, kind of anticipate a little bit more what they might be creating in terms of hidden debt and and therefore how they might navigate around it in the future. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, and, and so you, you talked about debt bergs and also you talk about hidden debts uh, in the book and things of that nature. And Startup Nation, you can purchase that book. Uh, we have a link in the show notes for easy access. Uh, you can purchase that book on Amazon, Books A Million, or anywhere you get uh, your favorite books about you know entrepreneurship and things of that nature. I really think the Titanic effect is something you definitely need uh, in your entrepreneurial toolkit. And just to let you know, Startup Nation, this book has all five-star ratings on Amazon.com. So definitely you want to put that in your entrepreneurial toolkit for sure. So you guys, you talk about the book saying that, you know, it's for uh, the startup founders, for investors, but you also say it's for the supporter of entrepreneurs. What value would a supporter of an entrepreneur get from this book as well? Well, we know that no entrepreneur goes it alone, right? They have to have, and we advocate for having advisors and friends and others that they're talking to and bouncing ideas off of. Of course, the entrepreneur has to make the decisions themselves, but if you knew what kinds of issues, if you were an advisor, that um, they might encounter, it would help you coach them a little bit better. And so that's why we think it's important. And actually, um, the impetus for the book came from a presentation that we did to a, a angel network group. And they said, oh my gosh, this needs to be a book because investors like us need to know what to look for. And since we play an advisory role, we need to know how to coach these founders about things that they might not consider. Because as we mentioned there, Hidden debts. And some people have a trouble with that idea of debts because they think of it all in financial terms. That Absolutely. Debts yeah. Right. But, you know, most founders are really good at looking at the financial stuff because it's, you know, near and dear to the heart. I mean, it's the, you know, how many months do you have a burn left? I mean, you've you got to know your finances. So, but what they, the, the thing they forget is that these kinds of debts do actually have a financial cost at some point in time. Mm -hmm. Um. So, you know, one of the examples we give is, you know, getting the legal relationship between you and your co-founders on paper in a well-known way. You don't get that right and something happens and you're going to lose money and you're going to have to pay them off and it might be very expensive. So they are in some ways have a financial component, but they're mostly non-financial debts, 
that can cause problems and constrain the organization. Thank you for sharing that. Now, Startup Nation, when you go to the titanicaffect.com, the link is there in the show notes for easy access. There's actually a blog there as well that has uh, tons of great value as well as it relates to uh, the Titanic effect. Uh, as well in business, and you actually have one talking about the, uh, the the Theranos effect that 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 business with Elizabeth Holmes and stuff like that. Kind of share some insight to how the Titanic effect uh, relates to what was going on with that company, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, interestingly, we had the opportunity to do um, a webinar a few weeks ago with the sure. Society of Physician Entrepreneurs, which is a not for profit that helps innovators in healthcare, and we kind of drew some more direct parallels to Theranos. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's the, uh, the blog you may be referring to was related yes. to that. Um, yeah. So if you kind of look back on the history of Theranos and, and some of the major decisions that were made, but also kind of the, the pattern of behaviors in terms of who was involved in decision-making, uh, how the investors and advisors were treated and the amount of kind of input uh, and leverage that they had in the decision-making process. Uh, but also the, the big one, uh, that we talk about, and we talk about it in the strategy ocean, uh, is that you know when you're you're building your venture, you want to be kind of building systematically across all the different dimensions: the people involved, the team, the human side, the market, your customer relationships, and starting to to build something that that they're willing to pay for, and you get some traction there. But also the product, and and the other two pieces don't work if you don't have a product that actually is moving from you know, bubble gum and, and um, duct tape to right. something that is robust and, and scalable. Absolutely. And Theranos raised, uh, you know, hundreds of millions right. of dollars um, at a very high valuation, eventually over $9 billion uh, from a lot of investors. They built a big team uh, and they, they actually were selling to customers without a proven product. They never really took the technology through the necessary steps uh, to prove that that it was uh, viable, even in prototype form, let alone scalable. Uh, so that's the kind of specific debt that, that we refer to. Uh, but but you see distributed across Theranos uh, a lot of these specific debtbergs, uh, unfortunately, uh, that resulted in a uh, our own uh, modern Titanic in, in healthcare. What I thought was interesting is if you look at some of the issues in terms of the decision-making, for example, Elizabeth Absolutely. Holmes held on to most of the decision-making and, and had a, uh, the board had very little say. And we see that happening right now. So, you know, we work, tried mm-hmm. to IPO yeah. a couple weeks ago, right. and it, it kind of turned mm-hmm. out that, in fact, the, the CEO there also had the similar decision-making power. And, um, you know, they had to make significant changes and pull back the IPO. So people are now aware more of some of these debtbergs, things that used to happen that maybe won't happen again. But we're still trying to point it out. You know, you've never been an entrepreneur before. You've never worked in the medical device space. You don't know the science behind blood testing. Uh, maybe you shouldn't be running this company. Thank you for, for sharing that. I appreciate that because, uh, and you bring up a, a excellent point because we have uh, a, a lot of people where even it kind of like the opposite kind of happens where there are people who know a lot about, you know, uh, maybe healthcare, maybe know a lot about uh, food preparation and stuff like that. But the company side of it or the administrative side of it uh, is sometimes where it gets lost. And I imagine those debt birds start to pop up uh, there as well. So I appreciate you you sharing that for sure. Now, Todd, you mentioned one of the things uh, that you talk about in the book was about the oceans, right? And so I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you about that. The, 
human ocean marketing, technical and strategy ocean. Kind of break those down a little bit, if you would, please, sir. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, again, extending kind of that metaphor from iceberg to Titanic kind of led us to this whole framework of a nautical theme uh, and the idea of navigating and uh, the the whole kind of um, a, a big piece of the premise of the book is that when you are starting a company, and Kim uh, alluded to this earlier, it's not really about developing a product. It's not about finding the first customer, raising funding. Uh, it's not about finding co-founders. It's a little bit about all of those, but it's navigating that uncertainty and making decisions across all of those dimensions. So uh, in the nautical theme, we decided to position those as these four different oceans. So uh, right. the human ocean are the people that are involved in helping start the business, but also your investors, your advisors and supporters, as well as your first employees. And each of those kind of groups of people can lead to some different debt bergs as, as we talk about. Uh, similarly with marketing, uh, some of the stages that you go through in terms of segmenting your market, targeting a certain population uh, or market segment within the possible customer pool, how you approach them, uh, those set up expectations. And uh, th- it's really important to be able to kind of navigate through that piece. Uh, the marketing ocean also includes positioning. So uh, how you talk about your business. Uh, one of your previous guests talked a lot about you have to be different, different Absolutely. and better. Right. And so how you do that. And naturally, product market fit is not an easy process. It is not. <laughs> and there's some data that suggests it takes four or five years for a software to get product market fit. I, I'm thinking there might be some places where it takes even longer than that. And across that time period, you're going to change how you talk about the business, what that point of differentiation is. And, and that leads to problems when it comes to messaging and who raises their hands and how you manage your database of customers. So we call that positioning. And the last C in the marketing ocean is about tactics. You know, there's things like, Pricing has to be thought through. Uh, Selling one-on-one is a terribly slow, painful, and expensive process. How do you find uh, channel partners who have groups of your customers? And even how do you make your marketing scalable? Because, you know, we see a lot of startups when they go to raise money, they say, oh, well, we're going to hire a marketing person or marketing agency with this money. Well, you need to know how to make the marketing scale before you start asking for money. Quick follow-up to that. Do you think you know, people are asking for money because they feel the need to get to market quickly because somebody may take their idea or beat them to market? Like, what, what is the need to, to get it to market so fast and ask for that capital, you think? Well, I think there are a couple of different things that go into that. Um, for one, I do a lot of work with women founders. I'm on okay. the advisory board for the startup ladies. Okay. And, and they don't have resources, typically. Most women and people from, you know, uh, minority groups right. don't startup having access to cash and don't have friends and family with access to cash. So they're probably going to go seek investment dollars earlier simply to get the business moving forward. Dominic, I I think you're raising a really important point. And and if there is a true market need where other followers will be copying you quickly, uh, then that can be a justification. But unfortunately, I, I think there's become this uh, kind of embedded assumption or something that that is encouraged by the the venture community and and by um, a lot of the media that to be a successful entrepreneur you mm-hmm. should be going out raising money from investors and getting those DC dollars etc. And there are a ton of very successful businesses that 
either raise money through selling to customers, right? And if you can sell right. a customer and get a contract and get dollars in the door that allow you to keep growing and, and keep the doors open, by all means, focus on that as opposed to going out and, and fundraising, which can become an all-consuming task. Uh, but also, there are, again, many successful entrepreneurs who start either businesses to be self-employed or build a small team and are more service-based. And there is nothing wrong with that. And there is no reason why uh, to be and, and feel that you're a successful entrepreneur, you need to go and raise outside funding other than if the venture uh, really demands it and, and the market. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. that that's something that, uh, no, we, we have guests on and stuff like that. Some say uh, they kind of uh, agree with what you're saying. And we have some say, no, you got to go fundraise and things of that nature. So I'm always curious to hear uh, different philosophies and different doctrines on that, on that front. So I appreciate you sharing that. Once again, Startup Nation, the name of the book, The Titanic Effect, Successfully Navigating the, the Uncertainties That Sink Most Startups. I really think you should add this uh, to your entrepreneurial toolkit. So I want to ask you guys, guys and, and I want to make sure that I, uh, I mentioned your third co-author, Michael Cloran, who also wrote this book uh, with you as well. So when you were writing this book and before you, well, before you decided to write the book, were there any like uh, focus groups or any, uh, no, like, did you do this, no, share some of these uh, philosophies and doctrines with students and things of that nature? Talk about that process before uh, actually putting pen to paper. Yeah. So at the idea came because uh, Michael Cloran is a, a tech, tech serial entrepreneur in the software area. And um, he was doing a presentation that we had seen for one of our classes talking about technical debt and you know what kinds of things you need to do in software development to try and minimize technical debt. And, gotcha. and Todd and I looked at each other and we're like, wait a minute, there's not just technical debt. <laughs> you know, there's, gotcha. there's marketing debt, there's employee debt, there's co-founder debt. Um, and so that kind of got the ball rolling. So we were, there are several annual um, innovation days or pitch days here for um, early stage ventures. And we were asked to do a presentation for one of them. And so the three of us got together and we said, hey, let's kick around this idea of these non-financial debts, these hidden debts, and let's see what we can do. And so we took it out and, and people just loved it. And then so we did it for a class and they loved it. So we kept working on it and then we did it with as a workshop with the startup ladies and um, with the angel uh, group, Vision Tech. And, and by the end of all that, people were like, you need to write a book. Gotcha. <laughs> so it wasn't actually one of our ideas. It was kind of a surprise. I mean, being academics, you think we would be thinking about writing a book, but we hadn't thought about it at all. We know nothing about book writing at the time. Right. Um, but let, let me pick up from there, Dominic, because... Uh, there's actually one of the blogs is about how writing a book uh, is a lot like starting a company uh, because, mm. yes, we had ideas. We had some validation that the overall framework made sense, but translating that into book form is is really tricky. Uh, and we so we wrote a paragraph or I'm sorry, a chapter and shared it with some of our uh, entrepreneurial friends, both seasoned and new, as well as investors. So that was kind of like our MVP, right, was to to get a couple chapters in draft and, and share them with people. And the feedback was overall pretty positive. But in our early versions, one, we focused a lot on local ventures and we got some feedback. You know, there's some well-known stories like ones that are included in, in the book, like Airbnb and, For sure. uh, you know, that, that uh, uh, are visible, that have many of the same elements. But, but more importantly, 
there are ventures that survive and are successful. <laughs> we had almost 100% failures in there. And, uh, you, you know, the, the point was made from, from these entrepreneurs, you can have more visible, but also some success stories as well as failures to show even big successful companies that end up doing very well uh, can hit these, these icebergs and, and hopefully uh, survive and, and sail on. Uh, so that was some really helpful feedback as well as kind of the flow of the content and what we emphasized. So to the extent possible, we did try to really operationalize some of the things we talk about in the book that just because you think you have a product in your mind that uh, as professors, uh, you have ideas, how you package those ideas and communicate them. What was the role of kind of the Titanic, the White Star Line, how much to focus on that, what kinds of anecdotes or stories to include. Um, those were all things that we tried to get some feedback on in development uh, before kind of going to final production, if you will. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And, and another reason, as you want to point out, and also Startup Nation, one of those examples, uh, besides Airbnb, is also Cliff Bar as yeah. well as one of those successful examples uh, in the book also. The, one of the reasons I actually I love this book is because uh, I, I, I mentor uh, young people here in Memphis, and each year we have like a basketball tournament where the old guys play the young guys in another place to be, and I'm one of the old guys. But anyway, uh, <laughs> and so we beat them every year. And so uh, last year they beat us. Uh, we beat them on a, a buzzer beater, and they said like, "Oh, you only beat us because you hit that buzzer beater." Like, did we beat you on the buzzer beater, or did you beat yourself when you missed those seven free throws earlier in the game? <laughs> and so I, I, when I think about the Titanic effect, I think about things like that. You know, whether it be professional sports or anything else, was it stuff beforehand uh, that actually caused the demise or anything like that? So I appreciate this book. And I just wanted to share that as well. So yeah. I, I, I know you guys at the end of this month have a meeting greet uh, uh, at, uh, in San Francisco for the book on October 23rd. And I know this episode will probably come out after that, but share with Startup Nation for those of those, for those of them who think about writing books and have meet and greets and book signing, what goes into a successful meet and greet? Well, I think that this has also evolved for us. I mean, we mm -hmm. have now been talking about the book and different workshops um, over the last, well, I guess since last February or March. So it's sure. been a few months and we've done, you know, maybe close to a dozen. And, and I would tell you that we would probably say that when we go to present or teaching class, we have a pretty good idea of what we're going to do. And it, and it goes over pretty well, but by the time you actually do something, 10 to 12 times, you're a lot better at it. <laughs> um, but what we like to do and what seems to work best for us is that we have been partnering with entrepreneurs in the local market when we go to do a talk. Gotcha. And so we sort of share this framework and we, you know, tell a few stories around the Titanic. Most people are really surprised and intrigued by some of the things about the Titanic that they didn't know. We share some modern examples that are maybe are, most people might have heard of. And then we turned to the entrepreneurs and we asked them, so in the human ocean, you know, which of these uh, icebergs did you encounter and how did you navigate around them? And those firsthand stories are just so powerful. And um, we get kind of two common things after uh, we do one of these talks. One of the first things we hear is, where were you when? <laughs> right. Because people just learn something of a mistake they already made. And then we get, okay, so I'm going to go back and here are the five things I'm going to start working on tomorrow. In terms of what makes a successful kind of book signing or, or session or whatever, I, I would say three things that we've tried to focus on. One is know your audience. So 
every time we do it, while we've done it, you know, 10 to 12 times, each time it's a little bit different. We put in a little bit of different content for that particular audience, whether it's geographic or, you know, we, we did a, a score presentation a few weeks ago, uh, which is a group that, that counsels startups, but more on the self-employment, small to medium-sized businesses, not as many in kind of the high-tech arena. Um, so the examples we used were tailored to that particular audience. Um, second, as Kim said, in, including local influencers as much as possible, uh, and that makes it kind of more personal for them, but also helps bring uh, folks to the group. And then finally, we, we are pretty ruthless afterwards to always, even in our 10th and 12th ones, to kind of reflect and learn. So what worked, what didn't, um, what were the key pieces that, that we want to make sure we keep doing, but also what, what might we be able to do better um, and I think that keeps it kind of fresh for us, but also hopefully, you know, we're always kind of learning from the mistakes we do make and, and getting a little bit better at it. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And also thank you for shouting out SCORE. The Startup Life actually has a partnership with SCORE Memphis uh, here in the area. So I, I appreciate that plug, Todd, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> no worries. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. How you like being on the Startup Life so far, guys? Awesome. awesome. Great time. Great questions. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right, Startup Nation. So I hope you're getting great value from Dr. T and Dr. K's content, but we got to pay a few bills. Once again, my name is Dominic Lawson. This is the Startup Life Podcast, and it is powered by the Binge Podcast Network. Startup Nation, Kenda and I, along with our daughter Zoe, have this thing called Target Fridays if she's had a good week at school. We stop by the snack bar for popcorn and mermaid ices. Startup Nation, don't judge me until you've tried them. Those ices are really good. Anyways, we then head over to the toy section so my daughter can add to her LOL doll collection. My daughter is a pretty good student, so you can imagine that we have spent a small fortune on LOL dolls. However, I can take solace in the fact that Target makes it affordable to buy those LOL dolls and anything else we need as a family. That's because Target believes you deserve quality at an affordable price. And when you're entrepreneurs like us, that's extremely important. But great deals and quality products are not exclusive to the brick and mortar version of the retail store. Target.com has even more exclusive deals that you can appreciate. And when you spend over $35, shipping is free. And I know we all love free shipping. We love to purchase the amazing kids clothes for Zoe from the exclusive to Target Cat and Jack line when we go online. So the next time you listen to the show and you are reminded that you need something for your home, Start your Target journey with the link in our show notes where you can expect more and pay less. All right, Startup Nation, so let's continue. So, uh, Doc Saxton and Doc Saxton, if you would, please, uh, let us know the roles you uh, you have there at uh, Indiana University and the work you do there. Yeah, so I am what's called a clinical professor of marketing, um, and clinical just means that I have a lot of experience and I uh, bring that experience into the classroom. Sure. And uh, I have an undergraduate degree in marketing, believe it or not, from MIT. Um, and so I am a very quantitative person and I teach a lot of quantitative courses like in digital marketing and I have a class called marketing engineering. Um, and then I have spearheaded uh, women's and women in business initiatives for the school for the last couple of years. And now I'm launching some new programs that are aimed more at women and getting them trained in business. Gotcha. 
kind of wear, wear a lot of hats, as does Kim. Uh, for the Kelly School, Indiana University Kelly School, I teach in three of our programs. So one is our top-ranked online MBA program. Absolutely. Uh, that's called the Kelly Direct uh, program. I also teach in our evening MBA program, which is for working professionals getting their degree mostly at night. Uh, and then a business of medicine program, which is a physician-only uh, MBA cohort. Uh, so that's kind of within Kelly. I also uh, helped start the Indiana chapter of SOAP, the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. Uh, and a lot of the work we do is in the life science community. That led to a joint appointment with a place called the Regenstreif Institute, which is a kind of research think tank uh, leading uh, nationally, internationally uh, in the use of health data they invented the first electronic health record back in the 1970s. So trying to bring technology to computer, et cetera, a 50-year tradition of that. Uh, and I'm helping them with business development. In other words, how to increase the impact uh, that they're having on the actual practice of healthcare. care. Uh, so those are a few of the hats that I wear. For sure. And, and I did see that that joint appointment, uh, I believe, with Indiana in, in relationship with Indiana University uh, as well in my, my show prep as well. So I appreciate you sharing that. I was going to try to uh, say the name of it. I was like, I'm, I'm going to let Ty do it. So <laughs> I appreciate, I appreciate that. Uh, with Kim, I actually have a, a quick follow up question because you talked about, uh, you know, uh, being a, a clinical professor of marketing, stuff like that. And you brought up digital marketing. Kind of talk about a little bit. Uh, the evolution of digital marketing for, say, like the past 15, 20 years? Because it's gone through quite an evolution, wouldn't you say? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's, uh, one of the things I love about teaching marketing is just that marketing, I think, among all the business topics, is the one that changes the most rapidly and has the most innovation. So it's just sure. a hoot to keep track of. And we're particularly lucky here in Indianapolis. Our startup community has a strength in uh, marketing and sales SaaS businesses. So mm -hmm. technology aimed at uh, marketing automation and um, right. digital marketing. And so I, I get to see all the latest ideas that people have. It's just really impressive. But when you think about, you know, when, when we first started doing research, I'll be honest, we did our research by fax machine. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, and that was new. That was that innovative. Was new, right. That was innovative. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> we both did our dissertations by fax. So that was kind of interesting. Um, and um, when we first started having the internet, you know, basically when people had websites, they were putting catalogs or brochures online. And maybe there's a few websites that are still like that. But when, when you really are working in digital marketing, the website is now the hub of all marketing activity. And so all of your content, all of your activities, your customer database, everything should be coming off your website. Now, there are a lot of challenges with that. I don't know if you've seen the latest, but there's something like 5,000 companies offering sales and marketing software in the United States. You know what? Honestly, Kim, I mean, I, I didn't know that for sure. But if I just go through my Facebook timeline, I believe you. Yeah. I, I and believe so now marketers have a real partnership with the IT folks because we talk about the marketing stack and the sales stack and you've got to have pieces of software on top of each other in order to manage all the different pieces of the puzzle because there isn't one piece of software that does everything for you right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. For, for both of you, this question, uh, what is something uh, your students have taught you 
uh, in your years of teaching? I'll uh, take a shot at that. I think so. We both taught in a more traditional uh, kind of residential. We taught in Bloomington. We taught at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. uh, Great schools, and I I think we were very comfortable with the teaching in that kind of environment. But I have learned a ton from teaching students who are actually trying to apply the concepts in some cases immediately or the next day. And I think making the, the education that we provide kind of immediately transferable to practice is something that uh, is, has really been, I, I wouldn't say demanded by our students, but they deserve that. And that has changed both what we teach, but also how we teach and moved us before it became quite as, as kind of popular to the what's called the flipped classroom, where you're, you're not doing lecturing in the classroom, you're doing as much as possible uh, discussion, coaching, mentoring, that kind of thing, uh, and also experiential learning. So getting our students out of the building, into the marketing community that's here, into the venture community, having them interact with people, and that's both building their network, but also helping them translate the ideas and, and theories that they're hearing in, in the business school, which are very important and very valuable, but translating that to practice and not having to wait three to five years to, uh, to do that um, is probably the biggest thing that, that I've learned, even that's, if that seems kind of high level. Um, no, that makes sense. Make, the, the thing is the parent company for, uh, for the startup life is OWLS, which is an education consultant firm. So uh, that, that, that question came from the top. So. Gotcha. <laughs> nice. So the, the thing I would add to that is that when we first started teaching, you know, we would be basically telling people, here's what you're supposed to know and here's what you're supposed to think. And particularly with the later part of the millennial generation and the Gen Z generation, what we discovered is telling them what something is, isn't very useful. Oh, that's a big one. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, no, you didn't cut me <laughs> off at all. Um, instead, what we have to do is help them figure out how to practice it. And so it caused me to change how I run my class. Um, and for me, I use this rule of three. I try to get every major skill that I want them to do that they actually do it hands-on at least three times. Mm. Um, and for one, I work with them. Like, so I let, I throw them into the pool and say, swim when they start to drown. I say, okay, we'll try this or think about this and guide them. So it's very guided to start with until they are really experts at, at doing the activity, but they have to do it by hands on practice. And that wasn't the way I was trained. And that wasn't the way I started teaching when I first started teaching. Absolutely. And that, and I'm so glad you, you said that, Kim, I, I swear you get a standing ovation from us for that one. Because the thing is, when we uh, consult uh, area schools, and even with the nonprofits that we, we consult that, uh, that uh, uh, deals with uh, young people of Generation Z and, and, and uh, younger millennials, that's one of the things we're talking about, like th- this whole notion of like telling them something like, like that is just it's not you're not set. You're not set up for success in that regard because uh, the generation is a little different than uh, when we grew up and stuff like that. So I appreciate you sharing that uh, for sure. Well, the other thing I will add is that they're sure. remarkably creative. That they are. They're very. <laughs> they very much are. And and I and and they love a challenge. And so I think about ways to leverage their creativity 
creativity, maybe put some boundaries on it and say, okay, be creative in this space, but not that space. I'll throw down challenges in my class. And, and if you all can jump over the challenge, everybody wins. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate all of that, Kim, for sure. For sure. So Startup Nation, look, if, if you're looking to uh, you know, uh, get a business degree or go back to school to get that MBA. I have to have to say, Indiana University is a school. The Kelly School of Business is one you definitely want to look into because, as Todd mentioned earlier, it's ranked across multiple categories, and we're talking about from Bloomberg, Forbes, U.S. News Report, the whole nine. So, if you if you would, guys. Kind of share with us, why has Indiana University and the Kelly uh, School of Business, why have they been able to have this type of success for a very long time, Mike? Yeah, thank, thanks, first of all, for the shout out about the school. And it's a, it's been a great home to us. And, and uh, uh, we, we love being here. And we particularly love the students that we have the opportunity to work with as a result of that. Sure. Um, but if you go back historically, uh, for example, the Kelly School was one of the first to include computer training back in the what late 60s, 60s. early 70s, mm-hmm. uh, one, the first, uh, I believe, uh, as a business school. And then, and it wasn't the Kelly School back then, it was the uh, Indiana University <laughs> Business School. Um, but, and then in terms of kind of the, the online program, Kelly Direct, that we've talked about, that program is now 20 years older or even a little bit older. And while some business schools started doing an online business training or something in the late 1990s uh, or shortly after. It was it was pretty much of a kind of commodity mass delivery thing. It was let's uh, uh, you know just package some stuff that we, almost like a correspondence kind of class. So it wasn't high quality. Didn't have the same faculty. And Kelly said, "There's this big opportunity in using technology, um, but." we're going to do it right. We're going to take the same faculty that teach in our core classes in the MBA program, the the faculty that teach our very good undergrads and graduate students, and they are going to design the class and and kind of use technology uh, in a more modern fashion. Uh, And and that's what really vaulted us to that that top-ranked role, which has become increasingly challenging because a lot of other schools are are recognizing that opportunity. Um, But we, those are just two examples of kind of the, the innovation. The other thing I would say, which, which we really appreciate, is that there is a lot of value placed on being good teachers. And there are a lot of research universities where that's kind of a nice to have, uh, that, that the important thing is to be really good at research. And by all means, doing good research and, and generating new theories and, and empirical findings mm-hmm. is a bedrock of, of what a good university does. Um, but I'm a big believer in in kind of the the uh, the triathlete model, if you will. Uh, that that to be a good teacher, you need to do good research, but you also need to be connected to the community. But also to be an informed and good researcher, you need to be learning both from your students and from the context that you're teaching. I would not be researching the kinds of things that I'm researching in, in entrepreneurship if it hadn't been for my relationships with the venture community and the hard uh, lessons I've learned as an investor and as a co-founder. So all of those different pieces in my mind inform each other. And we're in a place where that's not discouraged and in in many cases is even encouraged. And that's uh, somewhat unique, frankly. Got you. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. So I want to ask this because I can't talk to uh, the Hoosier State Staple School representatives here and not talk a little (laughs) basketball. 
Okay. Uh, and, and but but it's from a business standpoint. So clearly, you know, in the NBA, we have a bit of a controversy uh, when it comes to uh, the NBA and China and some things that were said, things of that nature. And I'm not asking you to give any political statements or things of that nature. But this isn't the first time where uh, you know certain statements have have kind of you know you know uh, uh, spurred you know uh, geopolitical situations like this. So what what can we what if, if I'm in the NBA and I'm NBA exec, what lessons can I learn from things of the past that when this has happened to kind of help me come up with a solution to this issue? If that makes any sense. Does my question make sense? It, it does. It's a, it's a huge one, but um, I'm going to go back to something pretty high level and give Kim a chance to think and come up with something a little more uh, substantive perhaps. But, you sure. know, if you go back to like Jim Collins work on, uh, what is a vision and the, the importance of core values and kind of the organizational DNA uh, and, and decision-making. It's what do you care so deeply about? What's a core value that's so important to you that you will uphold that core value, even if it means a loss of business, loss of a customer, uh, loss of profit. And in this case, you know, kind of freedom of speech and being able to share your opinion even in that format, uh, I think some people uh, overuse social media, um, sure. but but that important core value. So I would bring it back to kind of strategy components because organizations have to make these decisions sometimes on a daily basis of not just what are we going to do, but what are we going to say no to? What are we going to not do? And kind of coming back to those, if it violates your core values, if it makes the, the directors, the executives, or even the employees uncomfortable that you feel like you're doing the wrong thing and not staying true to what the company cares about, uh, don't do it, right? It, and and uh, the, we're definitely not in the, the school that, you know, kind of profit trumps everything. Well, and I, I mean, and I can liken this from a sort of PR perspective to right. other situations like Nike's support of Colin Kaepernick and um, some of the other athletes. I mean, in part, you also have to know your audience, and um, right now, I think China only makes up 10% of the NBA's revenues. Um, so, you know, you don't want to clearly anger a new customer and send them away when you're building a relationship and you've been investing money in it. But at the same time, I mean, they're not a dominant customer yet. And so um, you have to balance what does the rest of your audience want to, to know and, and stand behind. and. Democracy is a really important to us in the United States. The other thing is that this was not necessarily one employee representing the MBA. It was one employee representing their own yep. perspective. And right. so, you know, you, you got to delicately balance that too, because you don't want to make the outstanding employee go away. But, right. um, you know, I, I think they're doing a, a good job of trying to balance all those things that, that come up. And we see plenty of companies where one employee made a choice for the company that didn't go so well. And in today's, you know, social media savvy world, anything you do wrong, you know, jumps up really quickly and is hard to backpedal from. So, but the other thing I would say is that it's important if you see something that you think is important that you are willing to speak up about it. I'm very fearful in this country that we're going to be moving towards a place where those who don't agree with certain people in power feel like they've lost their voice. I say good on him for making sure he kept his voice. Let me ask you this. 
what's it like working together? You've, you've, you work at Indiana University and, you know, you've written a book together now. Kind of share that relationship with us, if you would. Sure. And, and first of all, I would not recommend this uh, to uh, a lot of couples out there. It works gotcha. well for us. Uh, but we share, uh, my brother and I were actually talking about this recently. You kind of look at a Venn diagram of, of our activities and it's almost entirely overlapping as opposed to, you know, some other relationships. But, uh, you know, so we do athletic training together. We train for triathlons and sports and we do that kind of training and, and things together as well as, you know, writing and, and researching. We talk a lot about our teaching. Um, and, and that just kind of happened naturally from our initial relationship of working together. And, and by the way, hopefully Kim won't mind if I share this, we worked together for probably, at least nine months, maybe even almost a year, uh, and really not liking each other and not liking to work together. So it wasn't until we went on a company <laughs> ski trip that we kind of were like, huh, maybe that passion isn't anger or dislike. <laughs> maybe there's something else going on. Let's just get it out of our system. Well, 30 It was a total rom-com, <laughs> a 101 trope. <laughs> well, here we are 31 years later, still trying to get it out of our system, and, and that's good for me. Gotcha. That sounds eerily familiar with uh, me and my wife. <laughs> good, uh, good for you. Because when, when I said that question came from the top, that's what I meant. Uh, <laughs> that's what I was talking about. For sure. did, Kim, did you want to add in there? I'm sorry. Yeah. Over time, I mean, with any kind of partnership, whether it's, you know, a married partners or something else, you have to learn how to work with each other and understand each other's needs. And we both have a tendency to want to have a really high quality product. So you know, that's great. But I can remember the first time I tried to edit something that he'd done and I came back and I had bled the thing, you know, is red and everything. And he looked at me, he's like, all I wanted to know is what my fatal flaws were. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if I had to give a, like one tip is like, share what kind of feedback you want, including saying like, all I want you to do is say, honey, this looks great. <laughs> gotcha. Say that in advance. Or this is early work. I want you to rip it to shreds. You know, there's like a continuum there. Um, the other thing is like we've gone through uh, a few times, not recently, but where my best kind of mode of communication, even if we were like in, you know, in two rooms in the same house was to write an email and I could spend some time thinking about it. <laughs> like you're downstairs, but you know, we, we had, uh, you know, when our, our children were, were very young, right. uh, we were in doctoral program together. And I was like, I don't know that I can have a conversation and say what I need to say without whatever, right. Without it kind of spinning out of control. So, uh, so the mode of communication uh, is something that, that we kind of vary over time uh, in terms of how we, we share things feedback with each other. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. Uh, so I want to ask you both this, what are your superpowers and why? Such a good question. Oh my goodness. Well, I would say maybe we should do it for each other or do it for ourselves. We'll do it for ourselves. Cause we don't want to put the other person on the spot. <laughs> you know what? I, 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 I'm going to veto that. Do it for each <laughs> okay. other. I, I would love to see how that works. <laughs> All right. So should I do mine first or his first? Do yours oh, first. Do yours. You, you do mine. Uh, so I would tell you that I think I have two superpowers and uh, we'll see if he kind of agrees or what he thinks, but okay. one, I am really persistent. I mean, mm. if I have a goal I want, I, I keep thinking of if any barriers I come to, I think of ways to get around it. It's not uncommon for someone to say to me, well, I had to talk to you because you've been so persistent. Um, so that's superpower one and superpower two is I am really good with data. 
So if you've got an issue and there's any data that can help um, guide that decision, I'm really good at finding the data, sorting through the data, and understanding what the data means so that you may choose not to do what the data says, but at least you know from a science perspective what your right options are. And then I'll share what I think one of his superpowers are, is he's incredibly diplomatic. And I, I don't know how he has the equanimity to be so good at listening to two sides and understanding how to balance each side's needs, which includes in our relationship, but I see him do it with a lot of other relationships. I hear that. And then he infuses humor in it in uh, a way that, you know, diffuses the tension so wonderfully. And I, I sometimes try to channel him when I am in those situations. I'm not sure I can do it as well as he does though. Well, first, thank you. Uh, and yeah, I, I put a little differently. I, I think one of the things I really love trying to do um, is is to find win-wins. And, and I don't mean with myself, with right. someone else, although there's certainly a piece of that, but also two parties who feel like maybe they're in adversarial situations. Um, there's almost always a way to find a win-win there. Uh, and, and I'd love to kind of try and uh, disentangle that. What does that look like for each party and, and how do we get there? And sometimes that's more business negotiations. Sometimes that's more relationship kinds of things. But those kind of puzzles are, are really uh, kind of appealing to me. And I, I think I, I do have kind of a knack for um, the other, you know, the best superpower I think I have is that I actually really love what I do. Um, that. And, and, you know, from an education standpoint and the work I get, the, the people that we get to interact with, including folks like yourself and, you know, and, and some other podcast hosts we had the opportunity to work with, but also our students, our alums, uh, entrepreneurs that we run into. It's just such an amazing mix of really talented, passionate folks who are doing important work. And, um, you know, I, I think if, if you can discover that, at least in some facet of the work you do, uh, you know, kudos to you. And, and also it's very empowering. So I would say that's my other, uh, I would have brought up the same, uh, strengths that, that Kim has in terms of her superpowers of, of persistence, but also that persistence translates to very productive activity. And we've encountered a lot of entrepreneurs, I'm sure you have as well, that are really persistent at like banging their head against the wall. Um, but they're not making a dent in the wall and they're only hurting themselves. Um, and, and Kim is very persistent, uh, but also willing to put in the hard work and be productive in the ways that she's persistent. And, and, uh, I think that's, that's really important. And, and also she doesn't bring it out very often, but she has a very empathetic and, and soft side. She, uh, can kind of come across as being very demanding and, and analytical. Um, but, that's complemented by a, a pretty good understanding of what drives people and uh, how to reach them. And she works very hard at, at being able to do that across the people she works with. I hear that. I hear that. Thank you for sharing all of that. So before I ask the last question, I just want to say thank you both Dr. Kim Saxton and Dr. Todd Saxton uh, from Indiana University. You guys gave amazing content across the board and I very much appreciate your time today. But before I let you go, I'm going to turn the microphone over to you because there are entrepreneurs uh, out there who are they feel a little stuck. They're either afraid to start their business or they're afraid to move forward uh, because they feel stuck in their business. Or maybe they're, they're afraid to start a book or write a book uh, like you did with uh, the Titanic effect. 
Give them some words of motivation and tell them to keep moving forward if you would. Yeah. So you don't have to know where the end of the journey is to get started on it. And that I think we apply that in a lot of things. We've done a couple Ironman triathlons. That's 140.6 miles in one day. Um, you don't you don't do that by just jumping out the door one day. You do it by taking the first step, taking the first run, figuring out what you like, figuring out what you don't like, figuring out what's next. And eventually you get to that end of that journey, but you got to just take that first step. Be brave. The other piece I would add, Dominic, is um, talk to somebody who's where you want to get to. Um, It's amazing to me how accessible, even really successful people are. And when you're getting into something that's particularly uncertain or, or unknown for you, go to somebody, uh, network through, you know, however many degrees of separation it takes uh, to reach out to them. And uh, I, I would extend that opportunity to anybody in the Startup Nation um, who would like to reach out to us. Feel free, email us directly. I'm T Saxton at IU.edu. Uh, Kim? MK Saxton at IU.edu. So just, and I'm not suggesting that we're in a place where anybody in the audience wants to be, but if you have those questions, you know, find somebody, find uh, somebody who admire, or or maybe they become mentors, maybe it's just one coffee, but, you know, invite them to coffee, to breakfast, whatever, and, and they can help uh, address some of that initial fear and uncertainty about what that journey looks like, and I think be, be encouraging and possibly an ongoing source of support. Uh, as you move forward. I hear that. Thank you for sharing that. And though that contact information, uh, Startup Nation for both of them is there in the show notes for easy access. So that's going to wrap up this session of the Startup Life. I really enjoyed your time. Did you enjoy being on the Startup Life? Very much so. Thank you. Yes, you've asked questions no one has ever asked us. They're awesome. (laughs) I appreciate that. All right, Startup Nation. So here's my final take. Dr. Todd and Dr. Kim gave us some great advice uh, from their book, The Titanic Effect. Look, Startup Nation, you're going to have those debt bergs or those obstacles uh, on your path. But understanding that you can kind of forecast what those debt bergs possibly will be, identify what they are once you see them, but also how to overcome those is really what they want you to get you to see. That's what the Saxons really want you to see on your path to entrepreneurship. And look, Not only do you have this book, The Titanic Effect, which you should definitely put in your entrepreneurial toolkit, but Dr. T and Dr. K also gave you their contact information to help you on your journey if you have questions from time to time. They gave it to you here in the episode, and we also have it there in the show notes for easy access. Trust me, when you have Dr. T and Dr. K and The Titanic Effect in your entrepreneurial toolkit, you really can't go wrong. If you want to let us know what you think about our show, have an idea for a show topic, or would like to advertise on our show, Send us a message on the Startup Life Podcast Facebook page. And while you are there, like and follow our page as well. It's a great way for us to engage with you, Startup Nation, and really grow our community. The link is there in the show notes. Subscribe to the show as it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, or even on your Facebook timeline or any other platform you like to get your podcast. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and you find our content valuable, please give us a five-star rating as it will help us climb the charts and help more people find our show. You can also listen to the show on the Startup Life Podcast new website. There you will find the all-new Startup Blog where I write on many topics that are interesting and helpful to you on your path to entrepreneurship. And hey, If you have an idea, be about that life, the startup life.